0: Software companies today rely on group chat applications. The world of startups and small businesses is dominated by Slack. But for some large enterprises, regulatory constraints prevent them from using Slack. Slack is a web application that is hosted in the cloud, and regulated industries such as banking often need to run their applications on their own on-prem infrastructure. Mattermost is a open-source alternative to Slack that can be self-hosted, And this means that all of the networking complexities and scalability challenges that are controlled in the cloud by slack need to be handled by open source code rather than by closed source code and managed services that are running in the cloud because it is open source mattermost has some interesting challenges but there's also plenty of advantages mattermost can also be redesigned and customized for example uber ...designed their own custom version of Mattermost... ...called UChat. Corey Hewlin is a co-founder and the CTO of Mattermost. Corey joins the show to discuss the motivation for building Mattermost... ...and the engineering challenges of building an open source chat system. For more episodes about building chat systems... ...we've done several shows about Slack... ...covering the engineering, the security, and the chat system... ...within Slack, the chat system architecture... And if you want to find all those episodes, you can always download the Software Engineering Daily apps for iOS or Android. We have links to those at softwaredaily.com as well. And I want to mention that we're also looking for roles at Software Engineering Daily. We're looking for several different roles, journalists and an entrepreneur in residence. We're looking for somebody who wants to research a specific topic and build a business around that. And we're also looking for a few interns who want to write iOS or Android code. So you can find those job listings at softwareengineeringdaily.com and we'd love to hear from you. Corey Hewlin, you are a co-founder and the CTO at Mattermost. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. Mattermost is a chat service. It's much like Slack, except it's open source and it can be self-hosted. Why do people want to host their own chat system?
1: There's a lot of reasons, but probably the the biggest one is, is just security for high trust organizations, right? We have a we have a lot of customers and clients and users who really care about their privacy and care about their data. And so for them, um, you know that's a really big aspect of, of why they would choose Mattermost.
0: The famous story about Slack is that it was originally a chat system inside of a game company, and the game company wasn't really working as a business, so they pivoted to doing a chat system. And Mattermost apparently has a similar story, having been started within a game company. Can you tell that story?
1: Yeah, sure. I can give a, a high level. I mean, it's a very similar story in the sense that, you know, we were a game company doing Facebook games. A lot of the original technology, you know, came from the chat system there or whatever. Um, we've since sort of rewritten it in Go. But, you know, for us, it was just the frustration of needing a messaging platform and the frustration of moving messaging platforms and not being able to take your own data with you or you own your own data. Right? So that, that's also a really big you know, core premise of what Mattermost is built on. It's not only open source, but in our mind, it's open data, right? You own the data, you control the data, it's yours, right? It's your intellectual property, you can do what you want with it. And so for us, you know, a lot of it grew out of that frustration of, of being in different chat systems and not being able to sort of own or migrate your data to where you want it. And we had, you know, you could say similar technology in terms of how to do messaging or chat. And so that's sort of where we started with, what we started with.
0: So you got involved in Mattermost in 2014. I think this was at some point after the company had gone back and forth between the gaming and the messaging ideas. What made you join the company?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I came on at basically at the start of Mattermost with the intention of doing something like Mattermost, and so for me that that was a really big a really big idea, you know a really big thing like Ian and I used to work together we worked together in previous lives at different companies and you know one of the things we talked about is is and and back then I mean maybe today it's more obvious but back then for us one of the big things we talked about was just chat and how it's really a platform right and if you wanted to make that platform ubiquitous, in our mind, you needed sort of an open standard. And so the best way to do that is to be open source, right? And so for us, that was a large part of it, is just building this messaging system as a platform. In fact. original binary was named platform, um, which is kind of funny. But for us, that was really the the start of the vision where we wanted this messaging platform. And then we wanted to build verticals on top of that. So you you can think of business intelligence or artificial intelligence as a vertical sitting on top of that platform. That's actually my background. I have 20 plus patents or pending patents in both those spaces. But then you can even think of like true verticals, right? Like sales or human resources or real estate sitting on top of this platform. So for us, that was a one of the sort of key visions in the beginning was just this sort of open platform that you could then build on top of.
0: Interesting. So this is in some contrast to Slack's vision for the platform, which is built off of bots and API integrations like GitHub. But your vision sounds more like what you've seen with Uber. Like Uber adopted Mattermost, but they adapted the application to suit their specific needs. So if you have, since you have the open model, you can really have an opportunity to to hack on the chat system and build whatever you want.
1: Exactly. Like we, we call it layered extendability. And I can kind of go through all those different layers, but it's, there's probably a few very interesting ones. So if we start from the sort of bottom up, maybe is the best way to think about it. You know, for us, we're an open data platform. Like you own your own data, right? On top of that, we're open source. Now those two things buy you a lot, but there's still a lot of freedom and a lot of complexity with trying to do things at that level, right? And then we started layering on features on top. So we have a very rich plugin framework where you can write plugins in our system that can do things you cannot do in other chat system because you control it, right? So a great example that we like to use here is we actually have a, an intercept hook where you can intercept the message before it goes into the database or after it comes out of the database at this level. And so that creates really interesting scenarios where you can you can intercept something that may look like a key or a password or a social security ID and say like, hey, do you really want this message to go into this, you know, system of record? So that's, you know, th- those are, our, and then on top of that, we also have, you know, sort of what you think of as Slack compatible features like web hooks and slash commands and stuff like that. So you get this really rich, deep, what we call layered expend- extendability or developer toolkit. That sits on top of it. And depending on your organization's sort of level of comfort, they can start at the top and do very simple, quick things with webhooks. They can do more integrations with our rich plugin framework, really deep integrations that you can't do in any other platform. Or, you know, for us, at the end of the day, we are open source. So if you want to bring your own resources and, and kind of really do something, you know, kind of awesome and crazy, like, go for it.
0: It sounds in some ways like WordPress in the sense that WordPress is open source it's been hacked on. It's been adopt uh, adapted to different applications. I think WordPress was a, um, you know, gets gets uh, changed or personalized for different companies that want to host it. Maybe they they ha- they alter the WordPress core code base slightly, but then they also have this plugin marketplace. So there's different points of integration that you might want on WordPress. It's kind of analogous to what you're doing in Mattermost. Yeah,
1: yeah, ex- exactly. I think very analogous in lots of respects. You know, we we want to create a really rich ecosystem of these plugins and hooks and and various things that sit on top of Mattermost, right? That sit in in a, a marketplace kind of analogy, right, where you can do all these really rich integrations and you can you can use it in such a way that it you know may not have originally been designed for, right? And we see this happening all the time. Like there's obviously our sweet spot of, you know, devops, chatops, infosec, developers, but then we also have this other sort of Interesting, you know, cases that come up from time to time. Like we have some customers who use us, so warehouse employees in a big warehouse can message each other on their on their mobile devices, right? So we have some use cases that end up being very interesting. And for them, you know, they custom theme that app. In fact, you don't even necessarily know it's Mattermost that's running. It's a very, you know, it's a very IT centrally managed lockdown app in that instance, right? And so because of that flexibility of being open source and having these different sort of integration points or, or, you know, layered extendability points, like you can do some really rich, interesting things. And we see customers doing that all the time, which is amazing.
0: Give me an overview of the engineering stack that Mattermost had when it was initially built. So back, way back, as a games team, a lot of it was originally built in Python. And it
1: was just, you know, jQuery JavaScript sitting on top of of a Python backend. When we started really thinking about wanting to, you know, do this as a a separate product, we kind of looked at a lot of different technologies out there and we made a, a bet on go and you got to, and this is what i don't know three years maybe four years ago now today it's a pretty safe bet i would say back then not so much you know one of the things we even struggled with back then was you know is there enough third-party packages that we would want to leverage or rely on to help make our product successful right um, but today it's you know it's it's a sort of i think a great choice But even for us back then, it was a great choice in the sense that it's such a, you know, Go is such a powerful language, yet simple language, right? So, especially as an open source community, allowing that open source community to come in, experience writing something, and being very productive um, in Go and having a strongly typed language. I love Python, I think it's a great hacker's language. But if anyone's tried to debug a million lines of Python code, like <laughs> you felt the pain before. So I think being an open source community, one of those things is just having a you know a strongly typed language, a very simple language. And so for us on the back end, that was really powerful. Uh, the other one was that the front end, you know, JavaScript is one of those, I don't know if you call it necessary evils, right? It's the language of the browser. Uh, everybody has to do it. But I think when you look at all the different frameworks out there, we chose React. Um, and we we've had a lot of success with that, and really loved it. You know, we were with React in the sort of pre-Flux days, where we kind of did everything ourselves. Then we actually migrated to Flux-style stores, and we, we recent or maybe not recent. In the last year, we've migrated everything over to Redux, and that's been a great experience as well. So it's kind of the same, it's kind of the same thing there. I think as a technology, especially around technology around an open source project, I'm wanting to not only myself work in sort of cool new and emerging technologies. It makes it really easy as a community when your community wants to contribute because you know you work in Go or React and they want to get experience or see how really large projects are built. And you know, for better or worse, ours is a really large project and there I think there's I think anyone say it's like any code base. There's some things we really love about it. There's some things that, you know, in hindsight we're like, yeah, probably could have done that different or better. But it's there. And so it's really cool to see that.
0: So you started with a stack that was Python and JavaScript. Python on the back-end, JavaScript on the front-end, and then you rewrote it as Go in the back-end and JavaScript will react on the front-end. More specifically, what were the issues with the original stack that, that weren't going to work out that made you want to re-architect it?
1: I mean, there are several, but I think probably one of the biggest ones was just simplicity of having a single compiled binary. Like we knew people were gonna to wanna to run this on their, we knew from the beginning we wanted to be on-prem, right? In the sense that we want people to run this on their own infrastructure and their own data centers, whatever it is, right? And, and so there's just a lot of little things like that that make it very easy, right? For better or worse. Like a single static or single, you know, binary is just an amazing experience from a customer standpoint, right? You don't have to worry about what version of Python or what version of, of Node you have or anything like that. It's just a binary. You have a Linux box, you throw it on there and it works, right? And so for us, that was a large part. Um, In fact, a piece I didn't talk about was our database technology. You know, we chose MySQL and Postgres as our standard, and that was a very conscious decision. You know, I have a lot of Cassandra big data experience from previous lives, but we made that as a conscious choice because same kind of thing, when we're talking about the customers and users we want to go to, You know, SQL um, is pretty ubiquitous. People know how to scale it. They know how to set it up. They know how to pull data from it, especially when you start talking about an open data platform, like the easiest way to get data out of those types of tools. Um, You know, there's a lot of experience out there. And so for us, those are all kind of the factors that went into it. That and just ease of use. like. Knowing that we're going to ha- we're wanting to build an open source community around this, and knowing that we want, would prefer, I guess, is the best way to say, it, a strongly typed language, a language that's very simple and easy to grasp, but yet still very powerful. And I think those were all the things that sort of went into the decision.
0: If I'm an enterprise and I decide I want to have Mattermost within my enterprise. What's the process of deploying it? Yeah,
1: that's a great question so there's there's several different ways today. First is just kind of you go through the documentation and you install it on bare metal. That's actually not too hard. You know our goal is to get to that classic you know WordPress five minute install. I think we hear back ours is about twenty minutes, so we're super happy with that. Um, so that that's one way, but we also offer a lot of tools because you know we live a cloud world or whatever. So we offer a lot of tools like Terraform scripts that help you set up in AWS or Azure. But one of the other big pushes we've been making lately is just sort of more of a cloud native framework around Kubernetes. You know, making sure our application runs there really well, making sure we can support that for large enterprises. So that's another thing we see as well. So we kind of offer several different flavors of how to install the software, but I'd say those are sort of the main ones. One is just, you know, read the documentation, install it on bare metal. Two is use our, our Terraform scripts. And three is, you know, run it in Kubernetes.
0: So with Kubernetes, how many nodes are needed for a typical deployment? And how how has that multi-node situation evolved since the days before Kubernetes?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, mean, I think you could get down to probably the simplest... You know, the simplest installation for us where you you consider, you know, a node, a machine or you're not running multiple, you know, multiple instances on the same machine or whatever. You know, for us, it's that kind of classic three-tier architecture. We have a proxy. We typically recommend Nginx, you know, in Kubernetes, you don't necessarily have to have that there, but it does give you some other interesting things. And, and then for us, there's the Mattermost app server, which is, you know, just a single binary. And then there's the database server that can be, a, you know, a single node as well. Now, when you scale that out, um, you can scale that out, you know, horizontally. So uh, our app layer is written in such a way that it's a it's a masterless technology, meaning as n- new Mattermost nodes are spun up, they join the cluster, they start gossiping to each other, and they can pass traffic back and forth. And so it's written in such a way um, where it is almost stateless being a, a communication app we have to hold a WebSocket connection open to that cluster so that you can think of that as our only little bit of state but the apps are pretty smart and everything's written the client side apps are pretty smart and everything's written in such a way when that state disconnects they'll reconnect to another node um, and then on the database side you can kind of you know our, our classic one is a single database especially if you're in a small a smallish sort of you know user base but you know the sky's the limit there like we have some customers who have you know, multi-master, active-active configurations or who have, you know, master-slave configurations and they're running, you know, 8 to 12, you know, slave nodes, right? And you can think of each of those, 8 to 10, 8 to 10 slaves, you can think of each of those nodes, you know, each of those running in a different node in Kubernetes.
0: And even in potentially different regions, depending on how you set up. So, so if I'm an enterprise and I set up Mattermost across a Kubernetes cluster, is there anything operationally difficult with managing that cluster as it as it grows over time or is this something that it like is this do you pay like do, if i'm the enterprise do i pay matter most to help me manage and scale this cluster what's the scalability story
1: yeah so the scalability story i mean you know a lot of this since it's on sort of on in your own network like you would sort of have to figure out what you want to do so we have a lot of customers who have small instances who don't care about things like uptime or, you know, not being down a whole lot. We have other customers that want to hit, you know, four, even five nines worth of uptime. And so in those scenarios, what we see is is those, those teams or customers either work closely with us or they have their own internal teams where they're actively monitoring the, 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 the system and scaling the resources accordingly. Uh, Mattermost, the app server, you know, can elastically scale, obviously, up and down. You know, scaling the database up and down is a little more difficult for those who've sort of done it, especially scaling some things like uh, read replicas and stuff. And so depending on where we're at or where we're running at, you know, you can even leverage certain technologies like, you know, Amazon Aurora as your backend in that instance. And so for us, elastically scaling the app up and down is, is pretty easy and, you know, there's a lot of active caching built into the app. Uh, but what we find to be the bottleneck is, you know, scaling the database and elastically scaling the database. You know, that's a little bit more challenging subject. And what we find most of our enterprises care about is just high availability of that database, making sure that they can either fell over in a blue-green style to a different region or an entirely different cluster or have an, an active-active database where they can fell over in that instance as well.
0: What does that mean? The, the failover with a blue-green, what did you say? There? Yeah, so a blue-green is like you have, uh, so some of our large
1: customers don't necessarily, I mean, they care about scalability, but they care about things like high availability and uptime more. So a classic scenario for us when we do that is what we call like a blue-green cluster. So you have you have a cluster that is active, Its Mattermost is all running there, everything's running, you know, hunky-dory, and you have an entire sort of duplicate instance of that, where you have the entire Mattermost cluster and a uh, database that's being replicated on the back end to a cluster that's just in standby mode right it's just hot standby. and with a you know a, a flip uh, you know a simple script or you know a simple chat ops command you can basically redirect your entire traffic you know whatever 60,000 plus concurrent users from one of those sort of clusters or regions into another cluster or region so we have a lot of customers that that want that kind of high availability right and they want to do it between regions right I want to be able to fell over from the U.S. to Europe or vice versa, right? And so for us, that's a, that's a really interesting scenario that some of our really large customers want to get into where, you know, it's fun where you can almost machine resources at that point, you know, aren't necessarily an issue in terms of how they want to scale or how much, you know, how much excess capacity because they'd rather have uptime, you know, guarantees. So it's fun to see really crazy scenarios like that where you're failing over, you know, tens of thousands of concurrent users
0: between regions how much do these deployments vary from customer to customer
1: they can vary a lot i mean we we have you know sort of you know it's one of those things that's really kind of cool you have that small hey if you have 500 people great just run a single binary run a single database don't worry about it it's you know it's as easy as wordpress like that like that's kind of our attitude but then we also have you know you know going from you know Sort of 500-ish users to customers going to, you know, two, you know 200,000 users, right? 60,000 concurrent connections. And so, you know, that's a lot of configuration and horsepower putting into it and a lot of different use cases, right? Where in the first use case, it might be a small team with an organization, right? In the second use case, it's, you know, it's a very big either government or really large corporation who's wanting to sort of roll it out across their entire enterprise. And so, you know, the level of Responsiveness in the app, the uptime in the app—in those two situations, you know, have an extremely different expectation, right? You know, at the team level of you know 50, 500 users, yeah, you know, if 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 Mattermost is not up, it's no big deal, right? But at, at the enterprise level, where it's going across 50, 100. 200,000 users, you know, uptime's a pretty big deal, right? So we have some customers like that where, you know, even you pick the most low usage point in the server, you know, in the most off hour, and they still have, you know, 15, 20% of their traffic running and you know, in any 24 hour period. And so you can't just, you know, hey, we're gonna be down for 30 minutes to do maintenance or whatever at that point. And so you end up having to come up with, you know, creative solutions within those own customers' environments, right, because lots of times this is running on-prem. Uh, within their infrastructure and so uh, it makes for a lot of fun and a lot of challenge.
0: So you mentioned some challenges around the database scalability. Can you tell me more about the kinds of bottlenecks that you hit when the organization scales up or somebody's just sending tons and tons of messages or maybe you have a chat ops situation where like all the logs accidentally get you know funneled through Mattermost and and then it just you know DOS' the database? What kinds of issues do you have there
1: yeah exactly we have all those kinds of issues so probably one of the funnest ones is you know we have some customers doing you know more than a million messages a day inbound so if you think about it as a chat system that's a million messages in that could be anywhere from 10 to 20 million broadcast out Uh, We have some customers where 50% of their traffic is actually from bots, right? So, you know, having a bot DDoS, a Mattermost uh, cluster, is a very, I don't want to say common occurrence, but it has been known to happen. And so we put a lot of stuff in there around things like, you know, rate limiting and whatnot. But that's, you know, those are all the things that kind of occur, and we've done a lot of sort of work in making sure those things, you know, happen less frequency. So those are all fun scenarios. In terms of scaling the database, you know, for us, you know, it's, you know, re- relying on SQL technology, read replication lag is a big thing in our world. Um, we've written a lot of smarts in the application to actually handle uh, replication lag between master and slave. So we can actually tolerate a pretty high replic- uh, replication lag. We also do a lot of active caching in the server itself. So we can tolerate a lot of of, of slow data that you know data that's slow to propagate but i'd say that's probably where a lot of our you know most of our issues come in right it's that classic trade off of cost versus You know how highly available and how many different regions do you want to be right when you start talking about regions on in the other side of the world you know you do have to have you know a pretty low latency network to make that work and and stuff like that so it's you know it's fun and you know these are you know in in the cloud providers a little easier because we we have very standard methodologies or tools to understand you know what their replication lag is and whatever but when you're talking about an on-prem customer who has, let's say, their own physical data center in Europe, but they're using also AWS in, in the U.S., right? Then you, you end up with really interesting scenarios of, of needing to span across those sort of hybrid environments.
0: We did a show, actually one that aired yesterday, about Slack scaling their messaging infrastructure. And they have these situations where you've got a company with 100,000 users in the same room, do you have these kinds of issues with that volume of of users and are there are there any kinds of engineering problems you've seen that have been unique to that volume of users?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. So so we have that same challenge. We have we have people who have we have current customers today who have war rooms, and those war rooms are generating you know, more than can generate during peak load you know, as much as 100 messages a second. You can, a human can't even read them at that point. It's kind of fun or interesting to go see them because they even have, you know, lots of times they have bots putting messages and pulling messages out. So one of the things we did early on, and this is actually, you know, originally, you know, you think of it as a gift to the open source community from Uber was a load testing framework, an open source load testing framework. So our sits out there, it's open source, Um, it was originally sort of written by Uber, it was given to the community, we now maintain it as a community. And so we regularly test Mattermost up to 60,000 concurrent users. So that's 60,000 WebSocket connections held open to the cluster and you know based on our knowledge of how customers use the application that's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of you know 150 to 250,000 total users so we have we have low test instances where people are where we have 60,000 users all watching town square and watching messages flow by town square and we have customers you know real world customers you know with kind of extreme scalabilities in that sense right they want these war rooms they want all of their people up their entire enterprise in some of these things. And so for us that's where we put a lot, a lot of our effort. And like I said, we even publish we publish our numbers, uh, we publish our open source load test load testing tools. So if you're a particular customer and you have really, you know, interesting needs, like our recommendation is always like, hey, you know, there's a publicly load test, there's a you know, our, our load test tool is open source. Just go set up your environment, configure it in how you think you would like it to scale or what kind of horsepower you'd like to kind of put behind it and then just run the load testing tool against it. Um, our load testing tool is updated, you know, very frequently based on real world uh, data that we capture from our customers that our customers, you know, share with us um, in terms of, you know, what are the hottest routes or the ones we need to go optimize. So we put a, a you know, a, a ton of work And and you can even say that was a a really strong collaboration with Uber helping us um, do that work. And it was an amazing experience to work with them and to sort of leverage some of their resources um, in, in some respects to help us, you know, scale the system.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. So Uber wrote a post, a blog post last year about how they use Mattermost or a fork of Mattermost. Well, first of all, why did they start using Mattermost? And then why did they fork it and make their own version? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's a question you probably have to ask Uber. I'm not sure how much I can talk about that. But I mean, I think, I mean, high level, there's two things, right? They, they wanted a very high performance system. And then two, you know, they're very much a company that wants to sort of control their own destiny and, you know, control, um, you know, what features and what, you know, they do a lot of really cool stuff above and beyond Mattermost, like using Mattermost as a platform to build on top of. Um, I can't, probably can't go into the you know specifics of that, but it's... it's um, they do some really cool stuff, and I think for them that that both high scalability coupled with high flexibility um, in terms of a platform is 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 sort of you know is sort of why they use us. That would be my guess. Like,
0: yeah, well, maybe you can connect me to, or I can just send an email to the somebody if somebody's out there listening, somebody from Uber. I would like to do a show on that. That would be really interesting. So you have a pretty unique product. This open source tool that is deployed on-prem, but it does something that is you know similar to this proprietary tool that tons and tons and tons of startups use, Slack. I'd like to know how that translates to how you arrange the engineering team and the product development team and how you think competitively, how to structure your team's to really double down on your core competency and, and establish yourself in a rock solid position. Cause it's obviously like a, if you can get there, I mean, it sounds like you, you really are in the lead at this point, but that's a, it's just such a great business. And I, I assume you're, you're really trying to, to get things, you know, the structure of the company built so that this is a sustained advantage.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, for us, you know, we're, we're, I think we love open source and love the community. So we want always, you know, some very large subset of our community, to just be able to use Mattermost as it is today for free. But what we find is there's those customers who come from very high trust or very high privacy sensitive environments. You know, just even a lot of European governments um, or Europeans in general come from that space. It's a very different attitude than than over here in the U.S. And so for us, that's tend to how where we sh- structure our time and effort from a company standpoint, right? Uh, it, it, things around like security and compliance, the things high availability, scalability, the things that resonate with those you know super large customers. And so for us, it's it's that it's that you know that that sort of faceted approach of. Making sure we're still very honest and open with our community. I always like to say, you know, um, you know, we, we're the only way to to do that is just to be honest and open, right? So we actually spec everything in public, design everything in public. When we're talking about, about let's say, an enterprise feature, right? We openly discuss it with customers and community. Like, hey, this is what we're working on. We probably way overshare um, in terms of that content. About the only thing we don't do at that point is a little tiny bit of source code um, that we have in the enterprise version. But for the most part, you know, our goal is to make sure a large part of our audience can just. To use us and, and, uh, you know, build on that platform. And, and, you know, for those large customers that really care about things like security or privacy or high availability, um, running in their own data centers, you know, lots of times we have a lot of customers like that, right. Running on, you know, air gapped networks or, you know, networks that are, you know, uh, completely isolated from the internet or whatever. And so that's where we tend to focus, um, from a business side, that's where we tend to focus our efforts. What's been the hardest part of
0: building Mattermost so far?
1: That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, like, there's, I don't know if it's the hardest part, but like, you know, community is just an amazing experience, being able to leverage community, I think, for us, is directing and guiding that community in sort of an honest and open way, right, is, is always something we're very... Conscious about, and I think when you get a community or community member who's really interested in contributing or doing something, being able to shepherd that process and direct them in such a way that benefits other community members. So I think that's one we always sort of think a lot about and put a lot of time and energy in About you know, we're we're successful because of our amazing community, matter um, most. You know, the, the open source project, and I think giving back to that community is is something that you know, as you know. As a company, you have to really sort of put time and thought and effort into and making sure you're doing it in an honest and open way. And so for us, that's something that always kind of leaks to the top of our mind, right?
0: I don't know how much you have focused on this since you're your CTO, so you oversee the, the whole infrastructure. But have you seen any unique challenges to managing a large Electron app? I guess I should say, for people who don't know, Electron is a way of basically running a Chrome a Chrome browser, but it's, it's like an application that runs on your desktop. So a lot of desktop apps these days, Slack for example, are Electron apps and they're built entirely in JavaScript frameworks, just like a web app, but it feels like a desktop application. So have you, have you seen any challenges to managing a large Electron app?
1: That's a great question. I don't know if there's any challenges to Electron specifically, maybe more challenges to us. And I don't think there are even challenges, but maybe uniqueness to us. A large part of our Electron app is actually developed by the community. And so, you know, so it's it's fun or interesting having people that we call core committers, right? So they are community members who are not Mattermost employees who sometimes have as much access or as much rights to our GitHub repos or our private channels as I do. Right. And so it's, it's a fun and unique experience. I think you only see in in these world, in, in this world of open source. And so for us, leveraging our community to sort of do that and then you know the the interesting thing the person who actually leads up our electron app actually sits in japan right and that's in a time zone that is extremely different from the majority of the company right and so we actually dog food matter most ourselves we have a community server it's where all of our community sits it's where all of our employees sit and we interact as one big asynchronous you know written form communication project and it's amazing it's amazing to see that work and to see the challenges of that, especially when you're talking about being in all time zones around the world. But it's it's something I think we as a community have um, I'm very proud of. We've done really well, and it's by evidence of the fact of things like this. The person who, for us, leads the Electron app effort is a core commu- core committer who sits in Japan, um, and we interact with him on probably a daily basis, um, but in just very extremely different time zones. So that's really fun to see. See um. Electron specifically. Um I think it's been a great technology for us. It's really allowed us to do you know to get a desktop app out there and to make customers uh, really happy. I think the hardest thing for us um, I think this is more in general you know being on prem software um you know making sure from a security standpoint and stuff like that you know those things are very important to us so betting things like electron or other packages it uses is always you know top of our mind top of our radar. but I don't think that's any more so than probably any other sort of project that uses it
0: so the open source community it's that sounds cool cuz it's you see a lot of these companies where it's a, the open core model or the open source business model the people who are actually writing the code are almost all at the company like the the company that makes the open source project but it sounds like you've got a community of people who are not even who who don't actually work for Mattermost that are contributing to the code.
1: Yeah, yeah, we do, and we, we so we have you know we we've had, I mean we we typically tend to hire <laughs> hire those people, but but we have a, a a really you know a really large set of core committers who who not only commit to the the Mattermost project itself, who commit to a lot of integrations for us, which is amazing, or a lot of these other libraries. Like, And we can I can go through and name different repos. That So a, a large, our Docker repo is actually maintained 100% by a community member. Our Electron repo, or desktop app. There's just large things like that that are sort of maintained and developed by the community. A large number of our integrations are developed and maintained by the community. What the what the company tends to focus on is kind of two key areas, right? You know, those things that, you know, ethically we think we're gonna charge for and We don't want community to work on them because it's, a, you know, we just don't feel like we should do that. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, sort of all that cruft that community doesn't wanna work on, right? Like the hard, the, I don't wanna call them the hard problems, but the, the esoteric performance issues or the really hard things that take a lot of resources to do, right? Running a 60,000 concurrent load test you know, even though we can you know we, we have terraform scripts that can probably do it in twenty minutes, you're still talking about, you know, spinning up, you know, ten to fifteen you know, AWS boxes. It's not a cheap thing to go do um, or to run for any length of time. And so you know, those are the things that we tend to focus on, um, where sort of our, you know, our ability to organize and bring resources kind of can help out uh, as a company. And then the community picks up, you know, uh, does a lot of help for us in other areas. And it's amazing to see. It's amazing to see those core commit, we call them core committers in our channels. Uh, interacting with us, uh, they've even you know they even vote on things like MVPs. So we're very transparent, or we try to be. We have our community server, and the reality is, with the exception of things like security and some few customers, uh, we pretty much do everything in the public. So we have our community management server, and everything's kind of done there in the public. Even the enterprise features. Um, like I said, the, about the only things we don't discuss publicly would be security issues, or you know specific customer issues or specific customers
0: so security wise is that to say that there are potential security issues that you might know about that you don't want to tell the community or you you patch these privately or t- what do you what do you mean by that why can't you discuss security in the open
1: exactly so it's it's like specific issues that we either want to fix or or that we want to fix or specific issues in you know other libraries you know where we want to make sure we're up to date in those libraries so we'll invite sort of core committers or core community into some of those channels the ones who have the expertise to help out but we don't want the larger sort of user base to, to you know just like any sort of security related incident to understand it and to, to be a threat um, the other interesting thing is we, we got that kind of support too like when we we're going through a lot of our scaling challenges um, early on in, in the early days our community really rallied around us and helped us uh, solve some of those issues, right? Like we, we would provide the logs and the resources to run the load test and they would come in and like, oh, you know, the problem we, is over here. Um, did you guys look at this, right? And so that, you know, that's where, you know, it's re- and for them it's really fun, right? Like you get these fun, really hard challenges to work on that you probably wouldn't normally do in your off time because of the resources required to do some
0: of these things. And so that's, you know, that's a cool, a cool way to see community involved as well open source is something that continues to amaze me it's almost unbelievable that you still just see so much of the best software in the world be written by people who don't have really like a skin in the game to to contribute to something but they contribute to it nonetheless yeah i don't know it's it's just it's almost unbelievable
1: i mean i think open source eats the world i like like i think it's such an amazing experience to be part of it if if people are not part of a community, I want to encourage them, you know, matter is open source community. So of course I want to encourage you to go there, but like, there's all these other great open source communities that it's just amazing to be a part of and see the power of those communities and what they can do. Like for us, it's amazing. Is
0: the motivation for some for an, an open source contributor is that oftentimes that community, like they're looking for people to interact with and, you know, maybe they work on a piece of, they like a piece of software and they're like, well, I'll just get involved contributing to it because people who like this software are probably somewhat similar to me and that allows them to find a community and then they can contribute to it to make the community stronger is that the feedback loop yeah, that's part
1: of it. I think there's kind of three. I talk about it in kind of three areas or three sources. The, the first third is is just people who, who want to learn, right? Whatever it is. Oh, I really want to learn Go. Great. Go look at our project, right? I really want to learn React. Great. You know, Mattermost is here. So we get a lot of that where people are like, I really came to you because I want to see a really large, complex Go project, right? Or a React project, right? So we get a lot of that learning, right? Really high caliber people, but who may not be high caliber in a specific technology. So we get a lot of people. It's like a third of our people are people like that who are just, in their spare time, they want to learn and contribute and kind of give back to a community or be a part of a community. The second third is like you're probably your typical like what you would think of like what you described, just your open source kind of people, right? They're really there for that community. They go in and they, you know, we tend to see those people who go across multiple projects or who come in at different times and leave. They come in, they're really interested in a very specific aspect of your product. Um, or application or open source community, they want to work on that piece because it's really interesting to them, and they want to contribute back. And then they kind of you know go away, um, or sometimes they stay as well. Um, so that's the second third, and the last third is this interesting sort of community where they're more partners, right? And so half, half the time we don't even know until we start reaching out to them. Uh, we get you know I'd say another third for us at least is. Is, you know they're almost you'd almost call them partners right they're their customers or users of matter most who are sponsored you could think of them as you know workers of our core community who are sponsored by corporations in some respects right because we'll have some people in our community who've been amazing they'll they'll have been here for you know working doing amazing work for three or four months and then you know one of my goals is I have this thing called community buddy where I try to meet a new community member every week and I'll reach out to those people and I'll start talking to them and they'll be like Corey, like we're a customer like we've been using you for 2 years i talked to you over here i'm like oh oh <laughs> so you get those those customers who are just sort of sponsoring development on their features right and that's that's really powerful because we see customers really taking advantage of that because a, a great example is like you have you know we, and we have this all the time we have you know two customers who you could never ever get in the same room for whatever reason right they're competitive they just hate each other who knows what right But in that sense, you know, open source kind of acts like, you know, like Switzerland, like this neutral ground, right? Where you have one customer who's contributing stuff on one side and they're doing it in the sense of, you know, just good karma kind of going back into the system because they know there's another customer on the other side doing the same thing. Right. And so, you know, I think that's one of the cool aspects of open source is just this ability to 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 bridge the gap and get all these different sort of people to work together. And you end up with this sort of amazing product in the end, open source project in the end. And so that's really cool to see. And so that's, you know, we we generally see it about a third, a third, a third. It ebbs and flows or really fluctuates depending on the time of the month or who you're talking to or what's going on. Like a great example, like Hacktoberfest is always fun for us in October because we probably get 90 plus percent of our contributions uh, just come from like random, you know, one-time community members, which is totally awesome to see. Right. Um, And some, you know, part of our goal is to try to uh, get those community members to stick around, obviously. So that's, it's really fun to see. So it, it really depends on the month or what's going on, but it's, it's fun to manage sometimes.
0: So those kinds of security challenges that you mentioned, the, the things where, you know, you may have a security issue that it's not completely solved yet. And so you don't want to disclose it to the open source community. It makes me actually makes me think about like, there's actually a lot of Coverage over Mattermost that you would have to attend to. It's like a big security surface. Can you tell me about some of the security challenges, maybe some of the ones that you've resolved at least? Security challenges in building Mattermost?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think to answer that, it's kind of take a step back and, and think about what open source does, right? Having open source at its. This is my sort of philosophy or belief. Having open source at its core is one of those things that that challenges you to write products in a secure way. Because whether it's conscious or subconscious, as a developer who's releasing his code publicly, like you're going to spend a little bit of extra time uh, looking that over, and you're going to spend a little bit of extra time making it more secure. Because you know there's people, there's a tons of other eyeballs on the other end. Uh, looking at that source code so I think I think that's one aspect of it that's really interesting being open source where you get you know people just wanting to do their best work right doing doing a better job uh, we obviously have a very security focused nature here we have you know you know a, a security team we actually have a security meta team that pulls in people randomly um, to look at specific issues but then you can kind of you can kind of extrapolate that one step further before we kind of get to I'm trying to think of some specific security contexts but the, the other interesting one to think about is, is you know you have these different customers who have their own InfoSec teams that need to sign off on different forms of software. We see this time and time again where we have a you know a really large savvy sophisticated customer um, has their InfoSec team look through our Source cord, look through our plugins, and they're super happy at what they see, right? So you get this, you know, amazing, super talented internal security team at a really you know tech savvy company who looks through your source code, right? And that's, you know, we get multiple of those, right, as we get new customers or attract new people. So we'll get two or three people doing this, you know, two or three high caliber security teams doing the exact same audit, right. And it's really fun being the mediator, sort of the mediator, right, passing the information in some respects between them, right. And so I think in those two respects, that's where open source, I think, really wins in terms of security. I I know a lot of people say, ah, but it exposes your attack service. And I don't know that to me, that's really, you know, security through obscurity. Like, I don't know if it really does. Um, I think the the benefit of having engineers and people with a security-focused mindset looking over that code is way better uh, than not. Um, especially when you talk about these different engineering teams looking over your code and finding issues, finding issues, you know. Um, so that that's amazing. Specific security ones. I'm trying to think of ones that are. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, I can go back through and we can look through our security reports and show them. I mean, luckily, I'll, I mean, you know, the vast majority of ours are things that are, you know, reported by very sort of high caliber, in-depth uh, discovery, right? And I think, you know, a lot of that community is very much wanting, you know, open source to be successful and win. So we get a lot of a lot of great contributions like that. Really obscure things that you know in someone else's code base would have never been checked, right? Um, and we, we see that kind of time and time again, and, and not, I shouldn't say time and time again, but we see that and that's, it's always fun as a, even as a, as a team that works on this to go look at those things sometimes, right? Cause you're like, ah, oh, that's impossible. Like how could that, that's impossible be exploited, right? And you actually go in and look at it and you're like, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's such a super you know, savvy way, right? And my, my imagination immediately goes to that like, wow, you know this was you know, found because we were open source. Imagine if you weren't, right? Um, this would be an exploit that would that would live and, and never get corrected because it's that classic thing, right? Like and I know I've done it. Like, I'm, you know in past lives, there's been a lot of code that I have checked in to a repository somewhere that I know is never going to see the life of day. It works, and I'm done with it, right? And it's just that the quality of that code is in such stark contrast to the quality of code we usually end up seeing.
0: So, you get these enterprises and they deploy Mattermost on prem and they've got it going. And then, let's say there's an update to Mattermost. Is there a way for you to push out updates or do they need to download and update Mattermost themselves?
1: Yeah, so it kind of depends on what what we're talking about, but there's certain things where we can push out and help, but for the most part, they would need to update themselves. So we have a long-term supported version. We also support three versions back for security. So whenever an exploit is detected, we go patch that. And we we even give a lot of our customers and even big users, they don't have to be customers, guidance or knowledge ahead of time, like, hey, this patch is coming. Uh, we really think you should apply it because we think it applies to you, um, stuff like that. Um, and you know, a large part of it is, you know, making sure those teams are in a place to be able to do the the, the to roll out the update and do it in a secure way. Some of the customer obviously because they're on an air gap network or they're in a in a you know in a, in a very locked down network, they're a lot less of a security threat for them. We'll we'll explain the situation to them. They'll be like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, we'll take it on the next rolling update. But for us, it's not a it's not a high priority issue because of the way our environment set up or because. You know, it affects this piece of the system that we don't use. We have that, obviously. We have a lot of cool features, too, like TLS Mutual Auth, so you can lock down your clients, Um, you know, things that really give you um, a lot of extra or added security on top.
0: So I'd like to go into a little bit of engineering detail in terms of just the simple path that a message takes. So if I, in front of Mattermost, I send a message to a channel that maybe has 300 people in it, What happens? What's the process of like me sending the message, the message getting accepted by the server, getting written to the database, getting pushed out to the to the rest of the people? Can you walk me through the life of a message?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So we kind of leverage two different technologies. I'll probably talk about this in the more interesting or complex scenario when we're talking about a clustered, you know, Mattermost server and high availability server and what's going on there. So we have. We have sort of two kinds of connections where we receive data. You know, one is through our WebSocket connection, uh, that's our sort of real-time messaging pipe, and another is just sort of your standard HTTPS connection. So, if it's something that's happening in real time or being delivered in real time, then it almost always goes over the WebSocket. If it's something that's not, then it goes over the HTTPS connection. So, a great example of that is, you know, when you first start typing a message, you'll get the user is typing. right? And what that is is that's actually a WebSocket message being sent up the pipe. You know, like. It goes up the pipe, it hits a, let's say like in this case, an Nginx uh, proxy server. It then gets, it may get geo geo load balanced or load balanced in some some way. So you go to a particular uh, Mattermost app server, that app server then rebroadcasts that message using its gossip protocol to the other nodes in the network. And then all of the nodes in the network basically rebroadcast that message back down to the users who are in that channel. So you see, you know, Corey is typing. So, and this is one of those where I talk about inbound versus outbound like sort of broadcast mentality, right? A great example of this is let's say I'm in Town Square doing this at a company with, you know, 20, 30,000 people and there's 10,000 people live on the server right now. That means when I push a, you know, user is typing message up to the server, it has to turn around in real time, gossip that to the entire network and then push it or you know, broadcast it all back down to those 10,000 connected users that hey, Corey is typing, right? So that, that's kind of like the basic flow, and messages take a very similar flow. Um, when a message gets posted, it actually goes up on an HTTPS request. It goes sort of through that same flow before it actually gets saved into the database. We allow you a chance to hook the message. You can over you can have a plugin on the server side, a high trust plug you know server on the pl- on the high trust plugin on the server side that can hook the message. It can do several different things it can rewrite the message, it can filter out the message, or it can outright reject the message. Um, And that's kind of really interesting. Like, you know, we see lots of times, like I said, social security numbers or cuss words, you know, we have certain customers who, you know, you, know, don't, you know, don't want HR violations or whatever. So they filter out those messages before they even get in the database. And they may even alert, you know, somebody, like, hey, this is happening. Um, so then what happens is the message gets persisted into the database. You know, for us, it's a SQL. That message will then, you know, in the SQL database will then get, you know, sort of, it'll get replicated to its, its slaves. And then after the database, what happens is we give you another chance to hook the message. So here's an example where you just want to do some extra load you know, in its own thread, but you don't want it to necessarily affect the, the, the performance of the system. You don't want to outright reject the message. So this is a way for you to sort of, you know, peek at the messages going through the system and kick off some other backend flows, right? Because maybe it's not you want to outright reject the message, but you want to, you know, kick off a workflow that says like, hey, I think, you know, Corey just pasted his password in here. Like, do you want to go check on that? Or, you know, some private key or something like that. And like, we should go look into that. So you get those kinds of interesting use cases as well. Um, and then then once it's kind of through that those basic steps, then it kind of starts its broadcast outflow again. And that's the same thing that happens. The, the message then gets gossiped around to the other machines in the cluster. And then that message, those other machines in the cluster push that message down to uh, other users via the WebSocket if they are active and part of that team and part of that channel. If they're not part of that team or part of that channel, the message gets filtered out for them and they never see it.
0: Well, that's a a ton of detail, and I'm sure we could dive into a lot of different areas of that, but I know we're kind of running up against time, so I want to ask you a little bit about the business. Can you give me perspective on the size of the on-prem chat market and maybe describe in more detail how you think about the competitive landscape? Like, why are there some enterprises that can't use Slack? Can they use Microsoft Teams? How do you think about this market?
1: No, no, that's a great question. I mean, we think about this a lot obviously, right? I think there's a there's a lot of you know, there's multifaceted answers to this, but I think the the one for us that we keep coming back to is this there is a you know a larger segment of the audience, than I think people realize where you know they just want to own and control their own data, right? Whether it be a European government or a European company um, who's very centered around privacy. So that you know that that goes a long way. Then you get into other business, you know, other industries that are regulated, right? Healthcare is a great example of that. Finance is another great example of that. Fr- you know, they're they're heavily regulated industries, and industries, and not only do they care about a security aspect of it, they care probably even more about a compliance aspect, right? Uh, the classic one is finance, right? You talk about finance. You know, insider. You know, trader A cannot talk to trader B because if they do, that's an insider trading violation, and you need to know about that kind of stuff, right? So there's a lot of those kinds of scenarios where you get, you know, compliance type reporting that that um, you know, and you want to, you know, they they need to guarantee that they that they own that data and that they keep it for you know years and years and years and stuff like that, and so. For us, that's where we, where we see a lot of our, you know, obviously a lot of our business now. With that being said, we see a lot of people who just love Mattermost, the open source nature of it, the ease of being able to run it on their own servers, and who just go spin up what we call a team edition server and just start running it for their own community or team. And we, we love that. It's one of those amazing things that we just love to support because, yeah, if you're, if you're running a small team and you want to keep your messages, right, you don't want them to be deleted um, after a certain number, a certain number of time, um, then yeah great go set that up and run that and so for us like when we talk about things like you know slack and microsoft teams in respect to certain customers those are a threat but there's a, this whole other set of customers where it's not a threat and then what we're seeing too is this huge push in the industry right a lot of these customers just it's just like what they're doing right they want to commoditize the cloud right there's this huge push to cloud native and commoditize in the cloud. And I think that's true with a lot of these vendors, right? They don't want this. Like, I think the days of vendor lock-in and these bigger, savvier enterprises getting locked into these vendors um, is really on top of their conscious right now, right? And so if, if you could provide a service that's, As scalable, as performant, it gives you all the features you need, and you know through things like you know Kubernetes or Terraform does a lot of the self healing and management for you. You know why? You know why not? You know why not run it
0: yourself? So, do you spend any time talking to the Slack team, or is it pretty much uh, kind of a very different? companies and you're kind of fighting over the same space.
1: I mean, I think it's very different companies, very different philosophies. Like I said, you know, there's not a whole ton of intersect. Like when we meet at I think there's a ton of intersect in our community because you know, just the open source nature of it. But when we talk about customers, for us paying customers right, there's not a whole ton of intersect. And there is here and there, but usually those customers are, they have certain features or requests or, you know, pr- price conscious or who knows what they are. And, and Mattermost is still a great fit for them, but it's probably not the only fit, if that makes sense. So, so I mean, I, I think, you know, you know Slack's a great company. It's a great product. And I think it definitely is a, a you know, has a, you know, a need out there. And I think, I think we overlap with that to some extent, but I think, you know, when you look at the core of where we focus, it doesn't overlap that much.
0: Okay. Well, Corey Hewlin, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me. Wow.